Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Join us for our New Year broadcast with a compilation of voices from female leaders in politics, business, and academia. We hear from Patricia DeLille, the current Minister of Tourism, former Minister of Public Works and Infrastructure, who is also the leader of the political party Good. Lillian Barnard, the President of Microsoft South Africa, talks about opportunities and entry points for women in ICT. And lastly, Professor Michelle Ramsey, who holds the Saatchi Chair for Genomics and Bioinformatics of African Populations at the University of the Witwatersrand and is a director of the Sydney Brenner Institute for Molecular Bioscience. She emphasizes the power of leadership with access to resources and the agency to drive change. We hope their motivational words encourage you to face your fears, find your tribe, don't let anything stand in your way. Our first guest is the current Minister of Tourism, former Minister of Public Works and Infrastructure, who is also the leader of the political party Good, Patricia DeLille. Her message demonstrates how problem-solving, playing the rules, authentic leadership and a can-do attitude have contributed to her success. Between 2017 and 2018, the city of Cape Town experienced a water crisis and concerns of hitting day zero, the point at which the water level of the major dam supplying the city could fall below 13.5% and water would be rationed. Through various interventions, this disaster was avoided. During this period, Patricia DeLille served as the mayor of Cape Town and she now relays her experience. Day zero. I tell you, it's an experience that I will never forget where I could kick myself because in the beginning when we didn't get our rainfall in winter as normal, I spoke to all the engineers and the the water department in the city and I said, I'm worried that we didn't get the rains in June, July, August. And they said, no, no, Mayor, don't worry. It's going to come in October. I said, listen here, I am not a Sangoma. We can't depend on what's going to happen in October. I then say we need to start planning. And the new norm in the city will be the moment our dams reach 50%, then we must know we are in a crisis. So then having met with them every morning at 7 o'clock, we were able to put a plan to react and to respond what is going to come for us. We started off by water, um, water demand management. We had to reduce the demand of water so that we could stretch the little bit that we have. I used to say to them that you can only save water while you have water. So that was part of the savings. And we won an international prize at the time from Mayor Bloomberg. We also learned very quickly that we can no longer rely just on rainwater because of climate change and that we have to overlay all our plans going into the future with the impact of climate change. I then called Clem Suntner. He did scenario planning in the beginning of 92-93 about the kind of scenarios and the type of country that we might have. And we did, went through the scenario planning, which was a shocker and an eye-opener. 
because it then sinks in that if we run out of water, what the impact will be. You know, starting with the most obvious one, which that you won't even think about, is your as your whole sanitation system, your sewage system. If there's no water that can take that waste to uh, the wastewater treatment plant, all of that will just simply get stuck in the pipes and you it will not move, you know, things like that. And, and also, you know, the, the poorer people, access to water. We had to limit water to everyone. We also found out that about 14% of our water is just leaked away on a daily basis. And the norm internationally is normally at 10%. I said we can't waste any drop of water. We employed 4,000 young people. We put them through a, a, a six-week training course, how to fix steps, how to replace a washer, how to detect leaks. And we just let them lose in the city. Within two months, the 14% came down to 12%. We now had to also push up the price of water. But then you found the, the ones that can afford it. Uh, we live in Constantia and Bishop's Court and all over the, the, the city who continued because they can afford to pay. And then I said, no, money's not going to assist us here. We don't want your money. We want you to save water. And we gave them like one, two, three warnings. After the third warning, I personally led a campaign where we went to those big houses and we pulled out their water meters, which belong to the city because it's our infrastructure. And we fit in a water meter that restricted them to 350 liters per day. So we had to do a lot of things, but it was clear that the rain was not coming and we had to look at alternative sources of water. We looked at desalination. And uh, we got some consultants in that plotted that we can build about 20 desalination plants around the coastline. And I said, look at the cost of the water. We have to pass the cost on to the consumer. We can certainly not do that. We can do some of it, but we can't do the whole project. I phoned Michael Bloomberg and I said, please, I need some technical, independent technical help. And, the, and he sent two people, two world experts, and they came to look at the plan and the very same day they said to me, Mayor, they are just telling you what you want to hear. This plan is not going to work. Before you can decide where you want to build a desalination plant, you have to test the water for at least three months. They've never done that. So the specifications of the sieves that we're going to use was not going to work. So I dropped the desalination plant and then we found some new technology whereby we flew with a helicopter with a, uh, with a satellite dish attached to it that could show us where there were aquifers, water underground. And within a day's time, we knew exactly where we could find underground water that we could uh, access much quicker and much cheaper. So at the same time, there was a big drought in California. So I also worked with the mayor and uh, he said, no, the aquifers is good source of water, but you need to replenish it. So we replenish it with um, treated wastewater. I then reached out to all Capetonians. I said, look, 
I'm having a kind of a competition. I want to get all the water saving ideas from you and from the commercial side, you know, because we still use in our toilets clean water. And I had three of those exhibitions. You won't believe the plans that they came up with. And water saving, like having a shower in the morning and then you get the water in a bucket and then you uh, go use it for your garden. We got lots of ideas. We wouldn't have been able to do it without Catonians. Yeah. You've been in this game a long time and you've been very successful at it. But I'm sure there must have been obstacles that you encountered because of your gender. Can you tell us what they were and how you overcame them? Let me tell you, I have served as a mayor. I have served as um, a minister at provincial level. I'm now a national minister. I say to everybody, I must still just be a president one day. (laughs) But I've got no ambition. But let me tell you um, what I've learned, even in the years when I was in the trade union movement, um, that politics is like a game. You know, with any game, you've got rules, a soccer game or a rugby game. And if you want to play in the game, you need to play by those rules, even though those rules are very unfair against women. But as a woman, you mustn't then then just go and sit in a corner complain about the rules. You must play by the same rules that the men are playing and take them on the same game. And I just continued on that mantra that take them on inside the rules of the games. Yes, and play by the same rules, you know. I mean, some of them can be rude to you. They can be condescending, patronizing, They can attack you in parliament, you know. Um, I used to walk away and wait for the next opportunity where I am speaking. Then Then I do the same. Trevor Manuel once called me when I exposed the arms deal. Uh, He he called me a useful idiot for the losing uh, uh, bidders that didn't get the bids during the arms deal. A week later, in an unrelated debate, that we were speaking on, I think it was the health debate. I didn't care whether it's anything about the health. I, I saw him in the house and I said, you, you called me a useful idiot, but let me tell you, you are a useful idiot because you think that this country is sitting with a bottomless pit of money that people are stealing. You know, you are so shocked. And, and, and that's what you have to do because people think as women you must be uh, soft-spoken. Uh, you know, if I want to scream, I scream. If I want to swear, I swear. I say to everyone, I come to life but once and I'm going to live my life that suits me and it makes me happy. I think that is a great lesson. Tapping back into what we were talking about on on values, one question that I ask all my guests, and I find that everybody brings a different recipe, is about some of the factors that they feel have contributed to their success, whether it is about values, a particular person, um, faith. So if you could just share with us briefly what, in your opinion, have been some of your core success drivers. You know, there is one thing, and that is fear. You know, people fear the unknown. 
uh, some women will uh, give up even before they have tried because they fear what is going to happen. And I've never allowed fear to uh, oppress me. My departure point is that I fear no one. I don't care who you are or what position you hold. I only fear my God. For the rest, I don't fear anyone. And I think if you can get over that fear, because you, you sometimes fear that, oh, this man is going to say this and that about me. I don't care. So fear is, 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 is the key issue that women must overcome. But also sometimes in this patriarchal society, there are a lot of bad things that happen to women. I mean, if you look at the uh, uh, um, gender-based violence and femicide in our country, women are being oppressed at home, in the workspace, they're discriminated against, they're not getting equal work for, 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 for equal pay. And all the bad things that happened to me, I will say to myself, is because you allow it to happen. Don't allow these bad things to happen to you. So if something happened to me, I will first say, oh, I've allowed this to happen. But I will go back and I will fight back and say, no, you can't do this to me or you don't speak to me like this. I said, I'm not your wife or your cousin or your mother. You don't speak to me like this. But you have to do it at that moment when it happened. Not a day later or so. When it happened, you must be able to. Even if you need to raise your voice at that moment, respond and don't allow it to happen to you. But it's, it's mo most probably easier said than done. Because once you have built up that reputation, they become scared of you. So they won't take their chances with you because you, you have built up a persona of a no-nonsense person. And I, I find uh, that is helping me a lot because they know that you're not going to mess around with me. It really is, for me, an expression of your assertiveness. And it's almost flipping yes, the fear yes. script on its head. As we wrap up today's show, please, can you tell us from a, a point of view of uh, well wishes or motivation or inspiration for women and girls going into the new year, if you could please give us a message. Yes, I would really like to say to all women that there are three words that we need to remove out of our vocabulary. And that is to say, I can't do it. Sometimes people say, I can't do it even before you have tried. That must be removed because anything in life is possible, but on condition, if you are prepared to work hard and to work damn hard, you can do anything. So that will be my message to, to, to our women in our country. Uh, go for it. Fight for your rights. You're only going to live once. Don't allow these bad things to happen to you. And you will find that that gives you so much strength and confidence. Because if you fear and um, you say, I can't do this, I can't do that, it doesn't give you any confidence. But if you say, I can do it, you will go out and work hard and do it. So that will be my message. That was Minister Patricia DeLille. We welcome your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. 
Our next guest is the president of Microsoft Africa, Lillian Barnard, who formerly served as CEO of Microsoft South Africa. This extract focuses on women in ICT and the role of mentorship to help you realize what you are truly capable of. We start the conversation acknowledging that less than a quarter of ICT jobs in South Africa are held by women. You've spent a significant part of your life working in the ICT industry, and it's a sector which is unfortunately still male-dominated. There was some data from Women in Tech, and the article mentioned that only 23% of tech jobs in South Africa are held by women. That's out of 236,000 ICT roles, meaning that women occupy 56,000 of them. And when you look a little bit more broadly, according to the European Institute for Gender Equality, 17% of almost 8 million ICT specialists in Europe are women, with the average growth forecast for all occupations uh, between the period 2013 to 25, 2025 as being 3%. Given your experiences, please can you tell us about some of the gender challenges you've encountered and have overcome in your career? Yeah, I mean, in, in some of these industries that are typically quite male-dominated, when you come through the ranks, right, there's a plethora of challenges that you've experienced. And some of those challenges are organizational challenges. And I would even go as far as saying some of those are personal challenges, right, where you need to start garnering the confidence to believe that, firstly, I am worthy Number two, I am an intellectual, you know, equal of, of, of my male counterparts. And, and, and the thing is that when you start, you find quickly that I talked about 28, you quickly become an only, right? You, you get into these rooms and you start looking for people who look like you and, and you start counting and you don't get too far, right? So that for me was one of the challenges. And I quickly had to overcome it because I must tell you that has been the story of my life. Today, I mean, even when I got announced uh, by Microsoft uh, taking over the subsidiary as uh, the CEO for South Africa, the biggest story that came out of it was that, that I was the first woman, right? So it just tells you that that has really been part and parcel of, of my story. Maybe on a personal front, except from the organizational challenge was, I think, finding your voice, finding your voice in a, a room full of males where you feel confident not just to express yourself, but to make a point, to take a stand, right? And to, to believe in, in, in your point of view. Those are challenges, especially when you look in the room and you don't see anyone who looks like you. And for me, Dr. Malka, I got in some of these rooms very young. So for me, that was a challenge on top of it, right? When I kind of would look around, I would be like, whoa, okay, I think there's at least like quite, you know, 15 plus years of experience between the difference between myself and, and others who are in the room, you, you start also kind of suffering from self-doubt. And that is why this piece around trusting your voice, trusting your intelligence and believing what you have to offer and bringing it to the table and, and that it could absolutely add value becomes ultimately, you know, quite, quite important. And, uh, and in terms of just kind of challenges was, Finding help because everybody doesn't matter who you are. Somewhere along the way, somebody helped you. 
And I think what made some of those moments easier for me, and I talk a lot about mentorship, was finding people who could help me navigate. I was very fortunate, and I, I believe I was given the gift of mentorship. People mentored me. And I, I often share this with some of my young mentees and say that, you know, when you show the right qualities by having the right attitude, working hard, and you show a promise there's something that makes somebody wanting to say, hey, I want to bet on you. I want to help you with your career. And that's fantastic. But actually, that's not happening to you. Nothing precludes you from reaching out to someone to say, hey, could you help me? Could you help me figure this out? Could you help me understand this? Because there's always people who have traveled the road way before us, right? There's no need for you to kind of make the same mistakes and take too long to kind of get on board it. So, so mentorship for me was kind of key. And I must tell you that it has set so deeply inside of me that literally wherever I went in every organization, I've started a mentorship forum, a mentorship circle, because we all now know that, you know, you don't just get to this level purely because you are smart, purely because you work hard. There's a whole lot of others that do that. It is because of some of these other softer things, such as mentorship, where you did get help that kind of really aided your path. And when you talk about mentorship, is that what the South African chapter of the women at Microsoft is about? So I must tell you what was fascinating was that when I joined Microsoft in 2017, uh, I was asked uh, to lead the women at Microsoft chapter. And guess what? The first thing I did was to start a mentorship circle because I was at the time the most senior woman in the organization. Everybody reached out to me almost to say, Lynn, could you help me? Could you mentor me? And I struggle always with that to say that why don't you mentor these three and not the other five, right? How do you start creating that differentiator? I also wanted to democratize it a bit more because sometimes you have to do it because often some of these structures are just available to the few and far between. So I created kind of like a, a, a almost like a pyramid structure where 10 mentors, 10 mentors, 10 mentors, 10, by the time you're done, everybody's got a mentorship touch point. And Honestly, that created quite a groundswell for us where it created by definition inclusivity, where women felt seen, included. And of course, we have advanced the women at Microsoft structure actually quite a bit. And maybe I could share this with you, you know, because I was looking back and I just thought about my career trajectory. I thought about the opportunity, the privilege I've had to work abroad, you know, some of the access that I've had into some of these rooms very early, some of the courses I've been and what I actually just did 18 months ago, Dr. Malka, was that I, I thought I need to be able to put all my experiences together and give it to women as a gift. I ended up working with Duke to put a course together for my women, which is a series of about eight sessions just to take them through some of those building blocks that have been super pivotal in getting me here. And today we're rolling this out, not only in, uh, in South Africa, because it's been a resounding success. That program is now adopted across Middle East Africa as well to help women accelerate their careers. Congratulations. That is just such fantastic news of being able to really put all of your learnings and lessons and have that scalability effect. And it's about how do you scale? How do you bring more women into the room? How do you accelerate more women, right? Because you can easily do a one-on-one -on -one mentorship. Fine, and that's fantastic if I touch one life. 
but I wanted to touch many lives, right? And I found that by just, you know, partnering with you, doing this course has enabled me to scale this way beyond myself, which I think is fantastic, right? And we need to do more of that because our work is not done yet. A hundred percent. And when we think about the entire economy, literally everything is undergoing digital transformation from finance to health to manufacturing, which doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to replace what was done in an analog way. Um, but it's about looking looking towards digital and doing things in a completely new and, and different forms of economic growth, which naturally in this environment, that's going to create demand for greater ICT and STEM skills opening up more opportunities that should ultimately include women. So women really have to be equipped in order to participate in this new economy. Given all of your experiences and tapping into perhaps some of the elements in the course that you've done, for younger women who are contemplating their career paths, what would you recommend they do to be actively part of the sector and take advantage of opportunities in this changing world, whether it's from qualifications to subject choices or learnerships. Give us your take. Fantastic. I think, honestly, there is no silver bullet because if I actually think of how I got into tech, right, I always say this, that I did not select tech. Tech selected me because when I came out of university, I was just looking for a job. Thank goodness I ended up at an IT company and I'm still finding myself to be super relevant, you know, almost 25 plus years later. So one for me is that we need to demystify the complexity around what does it mean to have an IT career? Because if we don't demystify it, it will remain complex, perceived to be complex. For me, that's that's number one. And a way in which we do this, and you know there's a lot of initiatives being done today, is to expose young women to tech. Let them touch it, let them feel it, let them see it, let them play with technology for them to understand the accessibility thereof. And we have seen many initiatives when you start doing that, you can see that you can create almost your own groundswell. You create an appetite, you create an interest because you will never know whether you're interested or not unless you've seen it, touch it or, or, or feel it. Number two, I think also like, I think we need to become very, very programmatic in many ways, right? So it is about building programs, building programs from a very young age, right? If you think about primary school, all the way to secondary school, all the way to university, making sure that some of these programs that we have in place to actually give people access to what does coding actually mean? What does artificial intelligence actually mean? You actually start giving these things kind of names that people can, you know, really associate with. Another piece that I want to mention is that, you know, there's a big part on how do you coach, how do you mentor, but also how do you create for me kind of allyships, right? Because I don't believe just women need to empower women. We absolutely need men as part of the story, right? To kind of come in and kind of show what is possible so that we kind of show that this is not just for a certain group, but it's literally for every group. You also need to kind of encourage, I believe, young women to try new things, to have the courage. To, and, and it is very true. When you don't know something, you tend to be afraid. When you try something, you realize, oh, my goodness, it's, it's not that difficult. I have found, even for myself being in technology, I had to remain a lifelong learner. 
what I started out with in technology 25 years ago, oh, of course, it's not what we're doing today and talking about. So literally, I have to learn every day. And for them to understand that, oh, I'm not the only one we have to learn. Actually, everybody have to learn because technology keep on changing. And I would say another point probably is how do you personalize this for yourself, right? Because there's so many entry points into technology, if you think about it, right? Some people want to start an app, do something with it. Some people want to code. How do you personalize it? How do you kind of say, I'm going to use technology, whether it's going to be environmental, use it for sustainability, there's a piece there. Because the moment it becomes personal, it could easily become quite passionate for you too. Those are such great points. Lastly, as we close out today's conversation, please, can you use this platform to share a few words of wisdom, motivation, or inspiration with girls and women who are listening to us? Yeah, I, you know, I, I have so many truths that I carry in my heart. I mean, one is overcome your fear so that you can go and knock on very big doors, so that you can ask for things you want. Nothing that I ever got was handed to me on a silver platter. I had to go ask for it, seek for it, share with people my vision about my career. So it's overcome the fear to go and knock on those big doors and say, hey, here I am and this is what I'm planning to do with my life and can you help me? This is my intention. Number two, I would say become a lifelong learner. Just know that you're on a continuous learning journey of self-improvement and self-development. It's truly who you are. That means you're going to have many moments of vulnerability, by the way. Many moments where you will not know. And if you can survive those moments, you'll be good. Because let's be frank, Dr. Malka, when I came into role as CEO of Microsoft South Africa, despite of what I've done before, I've never been in this moment. That was a moment of vulnerability where I did not know. And because I got so used to those moments, I was like, I'm okay to embrace you know, the unknown, and uh, and I'm just going to go for it. And I would probably say, you know, the last one is make sure that you surround yourself with people who can inspire you, who can challenge you, and people who can cheer for you to make sure you go for your absolute best. I remember sitting with a great mentor of mine, and that was before I became CEO, and he's like, I've now looked at your career path, so when are you going to run a company? And late or what and he's always been such a great believer and have people like that in your life that constantly remind you of who you are and what you're truly capable of. That was the president of Microsoft Africa, Lillian Barnard. Post your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. We close today's show with Professor Michelle Ramsey, a professor in human genetics who holds the Saatchi Chair for Genomics and Bioinformatics of African Populations at the University of the Witwatersrand and is a director of the Sydney Brenner Institute for Molecular Bioscience. The work of this institute impacts on the field of human genetics, particularly disease and individualized treatment. Our discussion begins with Professor Ramsey talking about career opportunities in science and encouraging people to pursue subjects that interest them. So I think, um, you know, it starts very early on in school, you know, young girls being made aware and empowered to follow, you know, 
their their um, inclinations if they enjoy biology, mathematics, that sort of thing. And I think you know for them to also have role models is really important. And I think at schools, you know, there almost needs to be a conscious um, reinforcement that we shouldn't be gender conscious, conscious when we think about future careers, that we should really let people pursue what they're good at. Um, because I think sometimes girls are made to feel that they shouldn't, you know, do engineering um, or, you know, sort of pursue certain um, careers. So I think we need to create that awareness very early on that, that that should no longer be a box in which you put a girl or a boy. So I'm just thinking about what some of the other things are. Um, so I'm very happy to say that our data manager at the Sydney Brainer is a woman <laughs> and that we have both, you know, men and women as postdoctoral fellows working on these large amounts of data. Our newest um, postdoctoral fellow is actually a woman from Kenya, and uh, what I was really pleased about is, is working with her remotely and then having the discussion about moving to South Africa and understanding how difficult it is at the moment in terms of, you know, getting visas for work and so on and working out a system where she can work remotely, visit us a few times a year. Um, but then, you know, she had a baby. Um, and I thought that was absolutely fabulous and, and took off, you know, maybe just six weeks and was back sort of just because she was curious about the research and wanted to pursue that. <clears throat> and I think we need to be more flexible to also accommodate um, young women and women in the workforce. And, you know, a lot of the work that we do can be done remotely. It doesn't have to be done in person. And that is one way of, I think, enabling the participation of women throughout their lifespan and not limiting them to thinking they have to choose between a career and a family. I think that that's such an important point that you've said on in, in terms of the, the flexibility, the openness, the opportunities of working remotely and being able to incorporate life into your work and not have this, well, well, I have to make this hard choice and I can't have a family because I want to pursue my career ambitions no, I think that's that's absolutely important. <clears throat> and I always say to the young women that work with me, you know, pregnancy and having children is part of life. And, um, you know, we need to support one another. And I think, you know, also that awareness that, you know, we work in teams. We are individuals and we make our individual contributions, but we need to support one another. And people need different kinds of support at different times during their life or during their their work and career. So I think, um, you know, that is something to make all of us aware of. And I'm always um, sort of slightly amused when there's a man in a committee who says, sorry, I have to leave to pick up my kids. And everybody thinks, wow, that is great, you know, that men are taking on more responsibility. Whereas, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, if I said that in a committee, everybody would go, she's not serious about her work. Um, you know, she puts other things first. And I think, you know, I've I've always said to those who work with me, family comes first, your health comes first. You know, we have to understand that that has to be accommodated. Um, always within reason, always um, sort of with a support to enable you to do what you need to do. But we, of course, need to be mindful of one another. That's a wonderful culture that you've managed to, to foster and create in the Institute. 
Rob Ramsey, besides your current roles, which I mentioned in the introduction, and I know that there's there's many, many more, but you've served as the immediate past president of the African Society of Human Genetics and the International Federation of Human Genetics Societies, as well as co-chair of the International 100,000 Plus Cohorts Consortium and several other structures. I'd imagine that participating in these types of organizations helps shape the future direction of the genetics discipline. Would, would that be true? Well, I think, you know, we all play our part at some level or another. And I always feel um, that, you know, I really like the idea as, as people develop their careers that they start locally and slowly you know, sort of spread out regionally and eventually in the world. And I feel very grateful to have had the opportunity to first, you know, serve on the Southern African Society of Human Genetics, then to lead the African Society, and now to have a role in this international 100,000 cohorts consortium. And, you know, in many ways, it, it opens my eyes to, you know, what is possible, how things work. And one of the things you realize when you do this is, you know, people are people. It doesn't matter whether they have <clears throat> a really important job or whether they, they are a student or are a support staff. They're all people and they have their limitations and they also have their extraordinary potential. And so for me, you know, serving on all these committees is really about looking at the potential, both of the people in it, but also of where the organization can go. And one of the things we did in the African Society of Human Genetics is to ensure that we create awareness across the continent. And we do that by having our committee meetings in different countries every year or every 18 months. And that sort of forms a seed for developing human genetics in that particular country. So for the three years that I was the president, uh, we had a meeting in um, in Senegal first, then in Egypt, and then in Rwanda. And this has enabled me also to build up this network of researchers across the continent. And, you know, I sort of feel that we've become a big family because, you know, a few weeks ago, we all met in Cape Town at the International Congress of Human Genetics. And, you know, seeing everybody again in person and realizing how much we have in common and supporting one another is really a wonderful, wonderful experience. Tapping into that notion of networks and networking, it is an important factor in career development. And as you said, you, know, you, you started out on a local level, then went on to a regional level and now on to international level. But it does seem to be an area of weakness for some women. Based on your experiences, how do you think women can become more effective at building and nurturing their professional network? I think that's so important. Um, you know, I think some women naturally are nurturers and would, you know, sort of have a network of men and women that they they work on. And, you know, sometimes there are women who feel that they can't ask for help or that they don't necessarily want to support other women. And, you know, I think we're not all the same, but I think we, we need to be conscious that men often have a very strong boys club you know they have a network and they support one another and I don't always see <clears throat> women doing the same so when chairing the program committee for this international congress I made a point of ensuring that we had a gender balance 
among the speakers, whether they're at the plenary level, invited keynotes, that sort of thing. You know, but we also wanted to make sure that we had a geographic balance. So that was interesting. And, um, you know, often in many disciplines, you'd have more prominent men. And it is that the voices of the women are not heard in the same way. So you have to be conscious of that. You have to, to say in this field, who are the people who are working there and who are the women? Let's give them a platform to talk about their research. And so I think um, as women, we need to strengthen our networks with women, also with men. Um, but, we, but we need to make sure that we provide opportunities to other women. Because I think that's what the network is about. It's about looking around and saying, how can I help advance the career of a younger researcher? How can I introduce them to somebody? Or when an opportunity comes to me, how can I hand that opportunity over to one of my younger colleagues, be they male or female? But um, but I think we do need to work on those networks and, and to strengthen them and be mindful of needs and career development for both men and women. That was Professor Michelle Ramsey, who is the director of the Sydney Brenner Institute for Molecular Bioscience. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity. Stay safe and Happy New Year. Wishing you all peace and prosperity in 2024.